0: It's interesting. There is a lot of stigma around mental health conditions still. It's unfortunate. There shouldn't be, but there is. And, and so often patients will not disclose for a variety of reasons to their clinician that they're depressed, that they're suicidal, that, they're, that they feel like harming someone else. They, they, they'll just keep that to themselves. There can also be lack of even self-awareness sometimes. People may actually think that their depression is a physical problem and they often have physical manifestations. And uh, and so they will come in with pain and aches and they won't recognize it as a part of their depression. In fact, 45% of people who commit suicide, have seen their primary care physician within the last 30 days before they committed
1: suicide. And now, from San Francisco and the UCSF Rosenman Institute, the Health Technology Podcast with your host, Christine Winoto.
2: What does a depressed person sound like? I don't know, and neither does any living person but Kintsugi's AI technology does. My guest today, Prentice Tom, is the CMO of Kinsugi Health, a company developing this revolutionary way of diagnosing mental health disorders. Before his work with Kintsugi, Prentice led groundbreaking mental health programs at Vituity and served as the president of Galen Inpatient Physicians. He's an extremely qualified doctor with a degree from Harvard, a residency at Johns Hopkins, and experience at MIT. Here's our conversation. Well, thank you, Prentice, for joining me this morning.
0: It's a pleasure to be here, Christine. I'm looking forward to talking with you.
2: You have come a long way to where you are. Give us some background, like what brought you into healthcare, why you're interested in healthcare, and you, how you make that transition from being a physician to be working in the industry.
0: Sure, Christine. Well, I, I as you mentioned, I initially went to medical school. I uh, trained at Harvard, and then I did my residency at Johns Hopkins in emergency medicine. I uh, went to academics initially and was on faculty at Stanford for a few years, and then joined a group in California that um, was initially called California Emergency Physicians. Over the years, it morphed um, from a regional group that provided emergency physician services to a national group that provided um, a variety of hospital clinician services, including emergency medicine, anesthesia, ICU, hospice, and then more recently, teleneurology, telepsychiatry. And we've had a long, fairly large ambulatory care division for some time. I had the opportunity to serve as their chief medical officer for about 20 years, as well as their chief innovation officer and executive vice president. And during that time, had the um, opportunity to interact with a significant number of health, health technology companies because a lot of technology companies were interested in seeing how they could partner with us, sell their tools to hospitals or to uh, us as a physician group, and um, ha- have seen just an enormous number and variety of technologies that have had significant potential in moving health care. In fact, I was a uh, uh, participated in the original move, even just from um, handwritten charts to dictation and then to electronic uh, discharge instructions and electronic medical records. And just technology like that, the use of ultrasound in the emergency department, a lot of these tools. I um, had the opportunity to help lead the creation of a program called MPATH Units, which is the uh, integration of emergency psychiatric care with uh, telepsychiatry, crisis stabilization units, and inpatient psychiatric care, and became very interested in understanding how we could improve um, the care of behavioral health conditions in the United States. At, at the time, the one of the largest issues in the U.S. was the underbedding and still is, the underbedding of, emer- of uh, inpatient psychiatric uh, for inpatient psychiatry. And it's um, probably the most underbedded uh, condition in the United States is emergency, psych- emergency psychiatry. It takes sometimes two, two and a half days for a patient to move from an emergency department to an inpatient psychiatric institute. And the reasons are that because the in uh, problems with Getting these people to an inpatient bed, it creates an enormous backlog in the emergency department and it delays care for a significant number of patients, not just the patients who have the emergency psychiatric condition, but all the patients who now can't get to a bed. So by integrating services and by creating a telepsychiatry program, we were able to reduce the time literally from days to hours. And, And... I recognized that it was really just simple technologies that could really change the care that was provided to a group of patients and became involved with a group, Kintsugi, which was creating a novel AI tool with, with, uh, which in 20 seconds of any conversation they can screen for depression and anxiety with the same accuracy as a clinician-administered PHQ-9 or GAD-7 survey. And those are the surveys that are uh, used by primary care physicians to screen for depression and anxiety. They're the most commonly used tools. And I initially started out as an advisor to their program, and they asked me to come on as their chief medical officer and so that's essentially how I became involved with uh, this particular company that I'm currently involved with.
2: Mm-hmm. You mentioned about you, uh, for moving a psychiatric patient uh, to from ER to inpatient, it takes days, and then you change it to maybe a few hours. What, I mean, what was the process? Why it takes two days? Not enough time?
0: Well, so... A patient is typically presents with an emergent psychiatric condition. Most of the time they're severely depressed, they're suicidal or homicidal. Sometimes they have an acute um, psychotic break and they're just gravely disabled. The emergency department is not equipped to evaluate or treat those patients. We can provide some emergency medication to sometimes calm patients down but we're really not equipped to evaluate those patients thoroughly, understand um, whether they're truly suicidal or homicidal. Um, and so what, we, what happens is they're placed on a hole until they can be moved to an inpatient facility where they can be evaluated by a psychiatrist. Because of the underbedding, those units are typically completely full and it can take multiple days for a bed to open up. In fact, in California, the average is about two and a half days to move a patient from the emergency department to a facility where they can be evaluated. Well, we looked at creating a program and it was led by an individual, Scott Zeller, who I recruited a number of years ago to the partnership to um, Vituity, which was the company I was with. It was previously called CP America, changed its name to Vituity. And he was really, he's pretty much been the national leader and looking at um, understanding how we can reduce the burden on inpatient psychiatry. And by pr- providing telepsychiatry and combining that with a crisis stabilization unit, which is a facility that only holds a patient for the first 23 hours and 59 minutes, we are able to create an um opportunity to evaluate these patients almost immediately when they come to the emergency department. So they don't need to go to an inpatient facility. They can be seen by a psychiatrist, typically through a telepsychiatry option. If they do need some further stabilization, uh, they can be admitted to a crisis stabilization unit for a period of time. Often those patients can be discharged immediately from the emergency department after the telepsych visit Because they're not, because the psychiatrist is able to clear them, something the emergency physician can't do. And now, what happens? So, of the patients who are admitted to an inpatient psychiatric unit, approximately two thirds of those patients never needed to be admitted. They weren't actually significantly suicidal or homicidal or gravely disabled. Now, because they are seen emergently, and they are either discharged immediately from the emergency department or they're moved to a facility where they can get some uh, urgent treatment prior to being uh, moved to an inpatient unit. And we've reduced that stay by from days to now two and a half hours in the emergency department. One, we free up an in inpa- the, the emergency department bed. Given that, it typically takes about three hours to see a patient in an emergency department bed and we've... Um, move that patient out two days early. Now you can see uh, um, eight patients a day in that bed. That's an additional 16 patients. So you're significantly improving emergency department flow. Two, you're decreasing the workload on the emergency physician who was otherwise caring for this patient who's staying in the department for two, two and a half days and now that emergency physician can spend that time seeing other patients. Three, you've reduced the risk to the hospital because you're not caring for a patient in the emergency department for prolonged periods of time, but you're moving them to the care that they need to be moved to. Four, you're significantly improving care. The emergency department just isn't a great place for a patient who has an emergency psychiatric condition. Emergency department are loud. There's they're noisy. People cannot pay attention to them. If anything, they're anxiety provoking, and they uh, create more problems for those patients. So now you're able to um, alleviate the the patient in terms of the um, care environment. You're able to improve it immediately, and also you're able to get him to care immediately. So you're either able to see him by a psychiatrist are able to move them to somewhere where there's more definitive care available to them. And five, because two-thirds of the patients never need to be admitted to an inpatient facility, you now offload beds. And so you open up that emergency uh, inpatient facility so that they can actually handle the patients that need to be there. And six, you improve the um, reimbursement both to the inpatient facility because the patients that need to be there are truly there and and you decrease the cost for caring for that patient because now you uh, the ones that don't need to be in an inpatient facility you've discharged them immediately it's essentially a win 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 there was no losers in creating these types of programs and it was it's because of the advent of simple technology like telemedicine and virtual care they were able to start
1: to create those types of programs. This podcast is sponsored by Brown Rudnick's Global Life Sciences Group, a team of legal professionals that help life science companies, lenders, and investors around the world turn good science into good business. Learn more at BrownRudnick.com. This podcast is also sponsored by Canon Quality Group. Canon Quality Group has been helping medtech startups set up quality management systems for over 10 years. If you're unsure when to get started with quality management in your startup, turn to the experts at canonqualitygroup.com.
2: Do you think the program that you have, the telepsychiatry, is that, do you think that is currently being implemented everywhere in the United States or that's still not the norm?
0: Yes, there is enormous interest in it. And it is, um, I, you know, it takes a lot of effort to create these types of programs because they cha- take significant change in, um, the clinical workflow. Also, there's a lot of integration that needs to occur and you need to get a lot of different parties at the table because you need to work with the inpatient facility. You need to work with the hospital. You need to create a telemedicine program. You need to find the clinical labor force. Um, you need to establish a crisis stabilization unit sometimes, which is a physical, um, facility that needs support. And so it's, it's it's definitely a very involved process and it takes um, on the order of months to even uh, sometimes uh, a year or two to put these in place. So it's not a simple lift, um, but they are taking off and they are becoming much more common and they are looked upon as one of the um, models of how we can improve uh, emergency psychiatric care in the U.S.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So Tell us more about your work at Kintsugi, because it's really interesting uh, what it does. Maybe you can start with, uh, I think you mentioned it earlier about the technology, and if you can summarize it again, what does Kintsugi do, and what difference it's going to make?
0: Thank you, Christine. Kintsugi has developed some truly elegant technology. It was started by Grace Chang, and Rima Seyalova and they are two uh, software engineer machine learning scientists that were truly creative and innovative in coming up with this. It's been recognized for approximately 100 years that individuals with behavioral health conditions speak differently. And it's been been very difficult to create a mechanism of measuring what those differences are until very recently and so they looked at how how does how do psychiatric and behavioral health conditions affect psychomotor response and they looked at voice production and sound production because that is a complex psychomotor Response, and they're not. We're not. The tool does not look at what a person says; it looks at how the person speaks, and so it looks at the spectral and prosodic elements of how sound production is made. And through a, a AI algorithm, it's able to correlate those changes in how people are actually producing sound to their level of mental wellness uh, their, uh, and mental health condition. And specifically, they were able to look at how these changes and how people speak are related to their level of depression and their level of anxiety. And they were able, they have now the largest annotated database in the world. It's been looked at, it's been deployed in over 250 cities worldwide, and we have a database of uh, 30,000 or so samples correlated to the PHQ-9 and GAD-7 scores. And within 20 seconds of any conversation, it can screen for depression and anxiety with the same accuracy as the PHQ-9 and the GAD-7 surveys, which is truly, uh, it's actually an astounding feat because up until now, the evaluation of psychiatric uh, conditions of all of medicine, has been the most art and the, uh, and the least science. There have been no quantitative tools to determine when someone is depressed in the same way that there are, for example, cardiac markers to assess if someone's had a myocardial infarct, blood studies to check people's uh, uh, glucose level or their hemoglobin A1C, or radiographic studies to look for um, um, various uh, anatomic abnormalities, psychiatry is purely up to the clinician to uh, have a conversation, evaluate the patient's mental wellness, and come up with a diagnosis. And this now creates a scalable, quantifiable, reproducible tool that can be used to assess someone's depression and anxiety level. Because of the fact that psychiatric conditions of any condition have been the most art and the least science, they are also one of the most underdiagnosed conditions in healthcare. It's estimated that only 50% of people who suffer from depression are ever diagnosed. And if we look at the how common it is over well over 50% of people with any chronic disease have some degree of depression. And actually a majority of people over the age of 65 have at least one chronic disease. And they're the most rapidly growing demographic in the United States is the elderly. The rate of depression amongst that group is very significant. In fact, as an emergency physician, almost all the time or very frequently when elderly come to the emergency department, they have depression as a comorbidity. And so now we have a tool that purely in the background can start to screen for that. Similarly with anxiety, anxiety disorder is now epidemic amongst the youth in the United States. It's estimated one out of three youth have some degree of anxiety disorder, which um, is incredibly unfortunate, and it um, speaks to a a number of the socioeconomic issues. Issues that are facing the United States, um, but actually, it's becoming a global problem. The World Health Organization estimates that one in seven youth worldwide has anxiety disorder, and so to be able to have a tool that, on in any conversation, can now detect for these conditions, is uh, is actually a, a significant benefit to our well to well first to the patients and just to our entire healthcare system also it's well known that it's been well studied that for example people who have a chronic condition who have untreated depression their healthcare costs are 2 to 3 times larger than if they have than if their depression is treated 65% of recurrent ED users have some degree of mental health condition. And so, by, and actually it's been recognized now that the depression is an independent um, variable in terms of uh, people, in, in terms of individuals who develop conge- um, coronary uh, uh, heart disease and atherosclerotic disease even. And so, and actually there are other studies that suggest that all stress uh, creates Im- immunity immunologic pathology that in- increases the risk of infection to a lot of other conditions. And so our ability to diagnose and screen for these conditions will actually significantly benefit the, the health of the United States.
2: I want to uh, ask you, you mentioned about your voice biomarker is uh, aligned with the, the survey that you mentioned. Can you tell us, like, what is that survey that the primary care use and the PHQ-9? Yes.
0: So the PHQ-9 is a survey. It's a questionnaire of nine questions that are used in the primary care setting to do an initial assessment on whether someone suffers from some degree of uh, depression. Similarly, the GAD-7 survey is another questionnaire where there are a number of questions asked um, to assess if someone suffers from anxiety disorder. There are two of them, early screening surveys. They're not by any means the final diagnosis. And so the tool is not meant to provide a final diagnosis. It's meant to be a screening tool to flag um, individuals who may benefit from further evaluation. Then the Clinician still needs to do a further assessment and uh, determine if the patient suffers from significant depression or anxiety disorder. The the tool is not a diagnostic tool. It's primarily meant as a screening tool. However, it is starting to be used in uh, certain environments to follow longitudinally how um, patients are doing because it can be used to sort of assess on a regular basis um, in a very non-invasive way, how patients are do- coping with their depression or anxiety.
2: So does Kintsugi replacing the PHQ-9 method or is that doing more?
0: Well, I wouldn't say it's replacing it. The PHQ-9 is rarely used. Um, only four, uh, less than 4% of primary care patients are screened for depression. But it's estimated that 40% of um, primary care visits will eventually be virtual or it's we're probably starting to approach that even now. And so what that really means though is probably closer to 100% of care will have some virtual component because it's not 40% where 100% of their patients will be virtual, but really it's everyone will have some virtual uh, care. The tool can be deployed when there is any audio file that's created. So it, it doesn't need to be a primary care virtual visit. It could be a follow-up call after someone's discharged from the hospital. Again, people with chronic conditions have some significant degree of depression. And so it could identify those patients. It can be used by call centers. It can be used in any environment where there is some type of audio uh, file. We could have used it in this conversation, Christine.
2: I would love to use one. I'd like to know.
0: (laughs) Well, the tool is available as a consumer app. Um, it, you can go to consugi Hello, and uh, it's Konsugi and just download the app, and you can just use it as a voice journaling app. And it can, and 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 within it is embedded the um, voice assessment tool.
2: So, how does it work? Like, so once you you got that tool, and then it said, like, well, you know, probably. Have a little, some sort of anxiety and depression, and then Kinsugi would refer that patient to uh, psychiatrists, or is it something that you have uh, another app to help them?
0: So we don't we don't provide the clinical services. What we do is we um, offer the tool to various clinical groups, and then um, and then they would need to create the workflows, the clinical workflows. So we would offer to a um, clinical group, whether it's Kaiser or family physician group or a health plan, and then they would use the tool and, and then it would flag those patients for them so that they can decide um, how they wanted to address the patient. And the tool can be modified. So for example, if, if they're interested in screening all patients, it can be used to um, provide the um, score across all the patients that they're seeing, or if they were just interested in not missing their severely, um, depressed patients, because they, 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 they only have the labor. They may only have the psychiatric labor force within that, uh, Mm -hmm. clinical group to see the patients who are on the far left end of the spectrum who are severely depressed. Then what we can do is we can just flag the patients who would, uh, have a PHQ score greater than, say, 20 even and um, and only assess the uh, and only find the severely depressed. So the tool can be used in a variety of different clinical scenarios and can be uh, modified based on the clinical workflows. Mm-hmm.
2: So. I'm just my lack of understanding. I mean, when the patient is severely depressed, don't usually they know and they? why would they need? This tool, they probably can tell the doctor that I'm severely depressed, or is that not the case?
0: So it's it's interesting. There is a lot of stigma around mental health conditions. Still, it's unfortunate there shouldn't be, but there is. And and so often patients will not disclose for a variety of reasons to their clinician. That they're depressed, that they're suicidal, that they're that they feel like harming someone else—they they, they'll just keep that to themselves, and they won't share that. Also, there there can also be lack of even self-awareness. Sometimes people may actually think that their depression is a physical problem, and they often have physical manifestations, and uh, and so they will come in with. Pain and aches, and they won't recognize it as a part of their depression. In fact, forty-five percent of people who commit suicide have seen their primary care physician within the last thirty days before they committed suicide. I believe I'm pretty sure that's the correct figure. Um, so, and 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 yet, it's not clear whether they were seeking help for uh, their mental health condition. They were just um, seeking medical treatment because they were obviously not doing well or whether their clinician could have uh, somehow been able to determine that they were having a mental health condition because a lot of times it's very difficult for the clinician to assess for that, especially if either the patient isn't aware or the patient isn't letting on Um, that they have that, you know, if I could show you a video, is it possible for me to share? I I would love to show, I know this is a podcast, but I would love to show you a video of the tool in action.
2: Uh, if you don't mind, you can send that the link to us and then we can include it in our podcast. Okay. Uh, then, Then people can click on it. If that, that would be really helpful,
0: actually. Okay. Let me, let me see if I can arrange for that. And mm-hmm. um, because then you can see the tool in action where someone is just talking and then the, the, the tool immediately assesses um, their, their level of depression, and anxiety. You know, what will happen, Christine, is I believe that tools like this will eventually create a paradigm shift mm-hmm. in, in mental health. Right now, when we look at mental health conditions, it's a very physician centric diagnosis, and we only look at the far left of the spectrum, people who have significant disease, so significant that they need to be seen by a physician or a psychiatrist or or some other mental health professional, or they need some type of medication. But actually, all of us, everyone has some degree of depression and anxiety. And when we create a tool that can be, uh, that's totally non-invasive, uh, that is quantifiable for the whole population. We move mental health uh, from a disease issue to a wellness issue. And it becomes not a physician-centric disease issue, but a population-centric wellness issue. Where we, because maybe people don't need a psychiatrist. Maybe all they need is some peer-to-peer counseling. Maybe all they need is a, a meditation app. Some people, they uh, or, or they just need um, to interact with a chat bot even. Um, so what it does is it, it, it totally ch- it creates a paradigm shift in mm-hmm. how we uh, view mental health in, in, the, in the U.S. So it not only is, helps us as a screening tool and identifying people who are unnecessarily suffering, mm-hmm. it actually will um, eventually create a paradigm shift in how we, we look at mental health and mental wellness.
2: Yeah, and I was just thinking about how when I see my primary care, probably they spend less than five minutes with me, and I assume that would be hard for a primary care to diagnose somebody with mental health in that five minutes interaction.
0: Yes, they and and so um, I'm a you know I I'm of an age where I have to get annual physicals and various. Uh, tests done on a regular basis. And there are all types, there's things to look at, colon health, heart health, lung health, uh, diabetes, blood pressure. And there's, the, if you, in that five minute time, there's typically nothing that is, um, there's no screening for your our mental wellness or mental health.
2: So I'm just curious, what are the things that you picked up from the voice the sound like how you say it? Like, is this something that we as regular human being can pick up?
0: No, no, so it's not because it's not. First of all, we're sampling on the millisecond level. The, the, the pieces of speech that we're picking out are not, uh, they're very, very, very short fragments. And then it, it requires a complex algorithm to um, understand how those various elements of speech um, when we look at that, when it, that when we get that whole sample, all those various elements fit together to determine um, that that individual's mental wellness or mental health status. So it's it's not we can make some very general assumptions when we hear people speak on whether they may be depressed or anxious, but we we certainly don't have the discrimination. Um, that that the Kintsugi tool does to um, identify in a very quantitative way their their exact degree of depression and and mm-hmm. uh, or anxiety. It's not that's not possible to do.
2: Yeah, I know. I'm like I'm sure on time. I want to get your last question. Uh, what do you foresee how the Kintsugi is going to change the whole industry? So
0: I, I think we will be a part of next generation mental health. We'll be part of the solution. I think that we're seeing changes in technology and and I don't, you know, there are other, there's certainly other efforts. And I think that, for example, there are people who are looking at um, longitudinal monitoring and they're doing things like looking at sleep patterns how long we comb our hair for, um, how long will we eat. And, and, and I believe that there will be information that will be derived from that and that people, when they change their daily habits, they will be able to eventually correlate that with their mental wellness. There may be other types of studies, whether they're uh, physiologic, neurohormonal studies or others, that will also advance um, our understanding of mental health. Um, there was a recent article that suggested that um, medication therapy was just as effective as medication therapy plus psychoanalysis in um, in treating mental in, in treating depression. And so, what that means is there's obviously some significant physiologic component to our our um, mental health, and so. Eventually, we'll come up with other diagnostic tools. So I think we'll be part of a coming much more robust, quantitative, scientific methodology in evaluating uh, mental health. By by the way, I find it really interesting because the tool, like I said, does not look at content. It's not what the person says. It's actually the psychomotor response that has changed based on their um, psychiatric condition. Mm -hmm. And and, and it is language and content agnostic, which is really interesting because what that means is that it doesn't matter whether what people's education level is, it doesn't Mm -hmm. matter the language they speak, it doesn't matter their ethnicity or what part of the world they're from. Everyone has a similar physiologic response in terms of how they, um, their their the the physiologic response to their um, psychiatric condition, and I, I and I just I think that that is an enormous step forward in just recognizing that in terms of how um, mental health is treated in this world.
2: Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for your time.
0: Yeah, it was a real pleasure, Christine. By the way, I really, really do appreciate the mission. If there's anything I can do to help with the uh, Rosamund uh, Institute, please let me know.
2: Oh, well, definitely. I really appreciate uh, your offering. We, We definitely rely a lot on people like you to support many of our programs. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you so much.
1: Thank you. Have a great day. thank you for listening to another episode of the health technology podcast. We want to thank our executive producer, Herminio Netto, and our podcast engineer, Andrew Rojek. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe and leave a review. The health technology podcast is available on all major platforms.